Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, in the Beach Shack, we've got Peter Wynn, the former Parramatta Eels rugby league player who played in a team that won three premierships back-to-back in 81, 82, 83, then also again in 1986. Now, he tells the story on his playing days, where it all started, the big hits, the head knocks. So he goes through the whole way through his football career and then the excitement and the pinnacle of playing for Australia and New South Wales in the state of origin. He's also went into business and started his Peter Wynn School and became very, very successful in business and also speaks about the legendary coach, Jack Gibson. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Peter Wynn. For this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. I used to watch him play footy when I was a very young kid growing up in the eastern suburbs. But, mate, you've got a great story, so we'll rip in. Peter Wynn, how are you, mate? Yeah, good, Hoppo. Very flattered and honoured to be in this opportunity to have a yarn you. Mate, great having you in. Now, let's go back. You grew up in the bush. Tell us about growing up in the bush. Yeah, my dad was on the railways, so I was born in Maitland. I moved from Maitland to Blaney, to Mora, Werris Creek and Musselbrook, and the whole family moved that journey. And then when I finished school back in 1975, I got a scholarship to go to Wollongong University. And I went down there to study mathematics for uh, three years. But in that little journey, my brother and I started playing footy in Tamora way back in 1964 in the four-stone seven-pound midgets. They used to cross <laughs> it. A dripping wet 30-kilogram kid, I reckon. So we played there, and then we moved to Werris Creek and continued playing rugby league. Went to high school at Corindai High School, kept playing rugby league. And probably fortunate enough you know, to get through that career up to that stage anyway without you know losing the enthusiasm and, 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 the, and the thrill of being able to play the game and not getting injured. So um, then I moved down to Thoreau, moved down to Wollongong to study. Left home when I was 17, didn't know anybody. Very lonely place when you move out of the country to, to go down to you know, continue um, your tertiary sort of education. I was very fortunate. My mother knew a bloke by the name of Keith Nolan, who was a secretary manager at Thoreau. They'd gone to school together. So after I enrolled at the college, I got on the bus and travelled out to Thoreau and uh, he was there, fortunately, at the club. And, sat us down for lunch and said, oh, I would keep being arrested and trialling for us. And I was only 18 at the time, so, you know, I hadn't lost any thrill, any, you know, I hadn't lost any enthusiasm to play rugby league. I said, yeah, I'm happy to play, a, come out and have a trial. And they said, look, we'll find a place for you to live. And sure enough, they kept their words, found a place for me to live. And I became a Thoreau butcher for three years, Hoppo, which is <laughs> a great place, you know, very close to Bullice down that south coast area there. It was certainly a... You know, a great part of the world to, to live. I lived in the Curaville. I used to get, we didn't have a car or anything like that. You had to catch the train out to train. Half the train out, but um, did that and got through it all. And then you were studying as well. Were you down there at Wollongong for, to be a teacher? Got a scholarship to study secondary mathematics. So I was a bonded scholarship. So when you, you got through the three years, then you committed to the education department and become a teacher. So how was it playing for through it? Was any you know, was it, it would have been, I mean, back in your day, it was pretty uh, pretty tough and, and, and rugged, especially the country footy. And it was tough. In those days, if you finished in Sydney, you either went to Wollongong or you went to Newcastle. So when I turned up there, I had my old scheme with footy cars. I went through the program. <laughs> I saw all these blokes I'd watch play in Sydney as a kid. You know, the likes of, I suppose, I suppose Alan Fitzgibbon, who was with Balmain when they won the comp. You know, different blokes that had, had gone through the, the game. Uh, and you look around for them. Also, blokes I played through as a kid, looking for them in the program, you know. But, but I turned up at patrol, and then all of a sudden, um, I got picked for the first competition game. I was selected in reserve grade to play against Collies. On the Friday night, the coach rings me up. He said, Oh, he said, There's a bloke just pulled out. So I'm 
I'm going to start in your first game in first grade. And so we've got train tomorrow morning. So I was only 18 at the time and I had to get the, had to get the, the train out to Bulleye Greyhounds. That's where I trained. Bulleye <laughs> Greyhound Park, couldn't believe it anyway. So I was only a kid and I went out there and did the training session. As we were walking off the, park, off the training park, the coach, his name was John McCarthy, said, look, just stop for a separate young bloke with you from Werris Creek playing his first first grade game today. We'll, we'll put a little move on for him. It was just a simple tactic. He said, the halfback taps, it runs around the 5'8", and then the 5 it runs back to the blind and hits me up the, the blind side. So that was around about 10 o'clock on the Saturday morning. I got a tea hopper for 24 hours. All I could <laughs> think about was this tap kick moving it hours again and happened. Anyway, we turned up the next day. We're playing against uh, College United at the Wollongong Showground, which is now the Wind Stadium. Yeah, well, it was pretty tough going. They kicked off and we got the ball hit up the, the other front row. I was like dripping 88 kilograms. You can imagine that's like. And, <laughs> and the Blake's all done. They're all in the, in the chip. In the, in the shoulder, and I dropped the ground, got up. Next tackle, brace got me in the eyes. <laughs> eight stitches in the eyes. I said, <laughs> that love for football was starting to wane a little bit. Anyway, stitching up at half time, out we go again. And uh, we're down about 14 10 with a few minutes to go, and you can't believe it. They've called this Werris. But I was ready. <laughs> honestly, I was ready, you know, that's all I could dream yeah. about. Tap happened, hit me at the boss, I scored in the corner, and we won the game. You blew won the game, yeah. yeah. It's just. I mean, the coach didn't know that what rugby league meant to me. I mean, I watched every game on television as a kid and it was in your guts, you know. My brother and I played against each other in the backyard and there's no guarantees we are ever going to make it. We just kept about Monday getting to this, you know, the playing bigger time football and this is probably, that was probably the start of my journey at that level. And I got the job done, so I was very happy, you know. <laughs> anyway, nobody else would remember that move, but I, I do distinctly remember so clear. <laughs> well, but yeah, as you're saying, you're so passionate about football. Do you think, you know, to become an elite football player, you have to have that passion? You have to, 100%. I mean, any, anyone that I've bumped into has reached that height, you know, the guys that I play with later at Parramatta and so on, you know, rugby league was number one. Everything else was secondary, you know, and you had to put that hard work in, the own personal training, you know, you want to listen to the good advice, mix with the good players, listen to the little tips they can give you. Now, that's certainly the, the trick to it. There's no rules. I mean, I didn't come through any sort of selective system or any sort of gateway or so on, you know. I was just a kid playing footy up there and tomorrow and then, of course, Werris Creek, you know. So there was nothing nothing given, nothing taken. It was just a matter of still wanting to, do the, still wanting to play the game. And open opportunities came along. And then after playing with Tarul, you where did the opportunity come from to then sign and play for Parramatta? As we went through, I played for three years down there and deep second in the Warra side, which is in those days, you may remember, there's Northern Division, Southern Division, Western Division, South Coast, Newcastle, the Warra. They used to play in the country divisional championship. So I was selected in 1977 to play for the Warra in the NK Cup. And uh, they picked two blokes, they picked myself and Slippery Morris, Steve Morris, as young blokes to blood. They took us up to Lang Park and we played against Valleys. Valleys had a, a good side. They had John Revo was playing for Valleys those days. There was uh, Ross Strudwick. Anyway, so that was my first rep game in those days. It was the fourth quarter football. And from there, we got beaten. And then I come on in the fourth quarter and I just ripped and teared. You know, tackle, tackle the goalpost if I had to. It didn't matter. <laughs> and at the end of that year, they appointed Tommy Bishop as the coach of Illawarra. And he picked a, a squad of 20 players and we started training in uh, January. And he was quite ambitious and um, we had a great side, as it turned out. We ended up winning, played 11 games that year. We, but right through to the quarterfinals, the MCO Cup, we won the country divisional championship uh, and then we um, beat New Zealand. So all of a sudden, this team was, was on television. The games in the MCO Cup gave that exposure. So then I, was, I played against Balmain. We knocked Balmain off, which was a huge upset. And then we played the Roosters. You know, they had, they had a super, superstar side and we, we got the bus up from Wollongong to Leichhardt Oval and was sitting in the grandstand. I had my program there and Mark Harris walked in, John Brass, Bill Mullins, uh, Kevin Hastings, Stumpy Stevens. They all, they all walked past us. We're sitting in the stand waiting to go to that little wooden fashion shit. It's funny because all of a sudden I said, oh, Bob O'Reilly hasn't, hasn't cut what must be playing, you know, and uh, next thing Bear turns up with a big trench coat, a little, little uh, I think it was a, a little roll under his arm, which he didn't, didn't have a bag. You know, it was like a towel. must have his boots wrapped up in it. It was, we had to be playing well that night. We got, it was two or three quarter time. We got knocked off eventually. 12 2. Mark Harris scored the try, and Bob Arroyo scored, and they won the game. That was the end of us for that year. But as I was walking out to go on the bus, Ray Warren was at the doorway. And he says, oh, he says Winnie, what, what are you doing next year? And I said, oh, I'm happy to play footy in Sydney. He said, Parramatta approached you. 
I said, no, no. He said, well, give me your number. So I gave him my number. Then off I went, put the bus back to Wollongong. I said, oh, no. Next morning, that's seven o'clock, there was a phone call from Terry Fernley, who was the coach of Parramatta. And he asked me you know, if he could come out and talk. I said, when do you want to talk to me? He said, I'll be down in an hour. So he, he drove down and had a good yarn to Terry. And there was other clubs involved at the time. Bob Fuller had approached me from the Roosters. He'd taken over his coach from Marty Beetson. There was Keith Giddos. There's probably eight of the 12 clubs. Because in those days, I it was a 13 import rule. So each Sydney club could only buy 13 players from outside the region. So I would be, if I was, whoever I was signed with, I was doing to be an import player. So that you do your own, your own negotiations, no managers to run it by anything. So I was probably forced because my brother was um, getting approached by clubs as well to play, for, to play in Sydney. So I pretty well knew what he was going to get and the money was being offered and so on. So that was it. Well, we went. So I signed with Terry Fern. He said to me, just signed Arthur Beetson. As a kid growing up, I was a real fan of Beetson. Mick Cronin was a country boy who played for the Eels. So that was it. Signed with the Eels and uh, fortunate enough to spend another 12 years there. Well, mate, you you picked the right time because tell us about that Parramatta era. It was probably some of the greatest teams that have ever played in, you know, from the, you signed in 79, but the 80s were amazing. It was, what a, what a run, you know. I mean, in 1979, we got to the final. Of course, we got beaten in the major semi by St. George and then uh, we got beaten by Canterbury in the final. But the good thing about two of us, so they signed me, they put me in a house up in Castle and they put another young bloke there. I've got more hair than him these days, Sterling. So Sterling, <laughs> I lived together for the first couple of years, you know, which is which is good to be mixed with another young bloke as well, you know. I know and as I was saying earlier, I know what it meant to him to play rugby league. So we were, you know, we were two peas in a pot, I suppose. And that side, 79 starting there, getting through the final, gave you a taste of what it was like in the big games. And then 80, we won the MCO Cup. And then 81, I got a phone call from Jack Gibson. Jack says, I'm finally going to get the coacher. I said, oh, Jack, I've really signed with Parramatta. Because in 1970, Jack tried to sign me for South Sydney, but I signed, you know, with the Eels. And he said to me on the phone, he said, oh, I'm going to, you took the money, eh, back in 78. I said, oh, no, Jack, I was signed there because Artie Bootson signed for Parramatta. He said, well, I've just signed for the Eels too, which is amazing, you know. So I was quite good friends with Jack, you know, I had, got, had good rapport with him. He, he was a man that, you know, you wanted to do it for him just as much as you did for yourself. So in 81, he turns up and we got through to the got through to the pre-season final that year, you know, hop and got, got beaten by the Roosters at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Amazing thing about that too in high so that was the first, that 79, so it was the first game, we played the first game of rugby league under lights at the Cricket Ground, which is Paramount of Roosters, you know, and he, to run out of that cricket ground is pretty special as well, you know. I was fortunate enough to do it the year before for City Country and then to do it again. It was big time, but what got me in 81 was in the second game. Um, I played against uh, the Bulldogs out at Cumberland Oval and uh, just before half time, I ran into George Papanis' head and my leg just went wobbly. I couldn't run, I was yeah. gone. I got up and limped off and, and the dresser said, Jack, come up. He said, you're all right, I'm all right, Jack, I'm all right. So went back out and played the second half, but I snapped the ligament. I didn't play for 12 months. You know, it's just amazing. You know, just uh, fit, you're strong, you run through a brick wall, and all of a sudden, bang, it was all over. Yeah, well, you think you're invincible, don't you, when you're only you know, a young bloke, you think you can uh, do anything. You do, 100%. You know? and Jack used to come visit. I always remember it was uh, Christmas, what was it? It was uh, Easter Sunday, Jack and Ron Messi turned up at the hospital I was in and they brought in this big platter of seafood and they sat down and ate a lot between the two. I think I got a prawn, you know. <laughs> Jack, Jack was he used to bring me a few books. He was very big in the NFL. He used to bring me books about Gail Sears, you know, these, you know Vince Lombardi and so on. So he, he said, look, when, he always said to me, when you're fit, I'll start you. You know, you could do all the hard work in front of you. So I was out for the 12 months. It wasn't until 1982 where, where I overcame the injury and came back, you know, to, to get back into first grade. And that was a challenge in itself, you know. There's no, no, nothing, nothing easy, nothing given in rugby league. It's a very volatile, aggressive game. Now, with Jack Gibson, who was known now as probably one of the best coaches around, did, do you think it was lucky he was at the club coaching when you got that injury to actually get yourself back to where you need to be? 100%. Look, I do agree with everything you say there, Hopper. I think um, having a bloke like him who, who you'd known as a, su- a successful coach, and when you meet the guy, you're not disappointed. You know, his mere presence, everything he said you know, meant something. It wasn't dingy up in any way. It was a meaning everything, every, absolutely everything he said. He, and the thing about Jack, he always called you by your first name, Peter, Michael, you know, and so on. He didn't... I never saw Jack belittle anyone, not one of the players. If he made made a mistake, you know, he, he didn't make a big point about it. But come Tuesday night after the game, he'd have a, a sheet 
you know, missed tackles, bad passes, drop ball, give your rating out of 10, you know. But that was all he'd say. So you could, you'd take, if you say you had three bad passes, you knew in your mind next week, you know, you, you wouldn't do any bad passes. If you had three tackles, you'd, you'd correct yourself and then he'd give you a rating out of 10. If you got the seven and a half out of 10, yes, <laughs> next week, you know. Yeah, certainly a bloke like him came to power at the right time. Probably a little unlucky in 1980. We missed the semis by a point. Uh, uh, Mick Cronin got suspended for the last three games for throwing an elbow. And uh, Ray Price was out with a crook knee. So we didn't play those last games without him. And we all thought Johnny P was going to be the coach again. But Jack, you know, Jack came to the club. And as I say, as you know, he got the three premierships in a row. And with that, what about some of the players you played with? I think, you know, they... Were unbelievable, weren't they? They were amazing guys. You know, if you go back to Artie Beetson being there, uh, Mick Cronin, Bob O'Reilly, Ray Price, Ron Hillish, they were, they were senior players. So everybody looked up to them. They they give you good little tips like Jack would say, you know, go on every play. Um, if you get close to stripe, get down low. Bob O'Reilly would say, you know, always be ready. Uh, Mick Cronin would say, push up and push up in defence. Uh, Artie Beetson would say, if you get, to, get your hand... Carried in two hands, not one, you know. All these little lines you just remember in your head, you know, and, and they had the experience themselves to be able to, you know, to, for the blokes to understand what good players they were and certainly try to emulate them. So we had, and then the young guys coming through, all the local juniors, which, you know, about the likes of Steve Ella, Brett Kenny, Eric Grove, Paul Taylor, Neil Hunt, they all came through at the one time. It was just amazing that you could have such talented players. In the club, Nick Patterson as well. I mean, Graham Murray. He's just the list of names. would just go on and on. Graham Molling was in the front row. You know, Stephen Edge came to the club. It was Jack was very smart. The way he was able to have you know, competition within the club. Like there were sixty players there, and there was fifteen in each team training team. So he appointed Ray Price, Nick Cronin, Ron Hildich as captains alongside Bob O'Reilly. So at the start of the year. Jack could divide the club up into these four sides. So on a Tuesday night, you compete against each other. Sunday, there was the competition, obviously, to win the game for whatever grade you're playing in. And there was hit of the week, you know, best try, the weakness, sort of stuff. And the year, there's a big reward for that. But that winning team went out with the, the sponsor, James Hardy, put a big shindig on for all of us. But you're competing yeah. against your own teammates early in the week. And all those young blokes were mixing with the senior players as well. It wasn't first grade over there. Reserve grade over there, third grade over there, we're all together, which I think that was yeah. the trick to it. Yeah, I think that sounds that that would be good because you're competing against each other and then you're going out and playing as a whole team. I think that would, and plus the other grades too, you know, it, it makes it just one big club. There's 100%. It was, it was, it was a team effort. I know 13 blokes ran out on the Sunday with all the hard work done by the club leading up to the game. Yeah. So, what was it like winning? The, the premierships, especially the three in a row. Oh, I don't, it's, it's a it's a great question. I, I just think about it now with what Paramount went through this year of getting to the grand final and not winning it. But diff- the difference is just when that full time whistle goes, it's, you're just lost in space. It's just another world. It's just the excitement, the sense of satisfaction. The week leading up to a grand final, Jack always said nothing changes. We're training at the same times. You know, it's just the same routine. Get yourself ready. Do whatever you've done. Just don't buy the newspapers. Leave all the paper clippings to your mum and dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> papers this week. You know? Don't look for your name in the paper. And I always remember it's funny. The '83 Grand Final. We're playing against Manly, and we used to get the every Grand Final. We got the bus from the Parramatta Leagues to the cricket ground, and we get the bus back. Anyway, this '83 Grand Final. I get there with my wife and. Um, Get on the bus. Here's Bob O'Reilly and his wife sitting in the front two seats. They bare retired at the end of 1982. And I said, and I was really motivated there and then as well because he'd been the first Parramatta junior player for Australia, played in the front row for the first Parramatta ever grand final. So to me, it, it pumped me up that Jack had put someone like him on the bus. So after the game, I said to me, Craig, I said, because Craig drove straight up from Jerry, and I said, what about the beer? And he said, yeah, he's. It's too tight to get himself a taxi out there. <laughs> He's looking, for, <laughs> looking for a free ride. You know, I think it's one of those master strikes. Uh, Craig, Craig would just give it to him. That was quite, quite. Yeah. <laughs> was there a lot of banter within the team, like, you know, um, in that era that, that pulled you all together as well as, as a good mates? Oh, we're all good mates. You know, even to this day, we haven't had a season trip. <laughs> we just can't get out of our system, you know. So <laughs> last week in October, the 81, 82, 83, so we go up to the Gold Coast and stay at the Star Casino for three days. So now I think because of the success we had, and there was no big heads in the side, there's no one 
putting anyone down or belittling anyone. I think we all gelled as a team there. And you respected both. I mean, Stephen Edge had come to the club and he'd already won a couple of premierships with St George and Jack gave him the captaincy. And Edgy never panicked. He was like a very well-spoken guy and he just kept his cool in the game. So he epitomised what a captain should do. Then you have the, the likes of um, Eric Graith. You just give him the ball. You know he's going to you know he's going to score it. Right? <laughs> or you give the ball to Bert Brett Kenny and he's going to do something flash. But um, we all knew our roles. Um, you know, you had someone rock solid in the centres like Mick Cronin. But, you know, in the forward, the forwards were, you know, we laid the foundations, you know, without in any way belittling what the bats, backs did, all the, all the forwards that we had, the likes of, you know, Jeff Bugden, Bob O'Reilly, Ronnie Hildridge, Stephen Edge, um, John Muggleton, Steve Sharp, Paul Mayer, Stan Jurd, you know, Ray Price. You know, they just, they, they trained hard and they played hard and um, they really, you really motivated each other because you knew the bloke next to you was busting his, busting his boiler out there. And what was it like, the 86 grand final, when you knew Mick Cronin and Ray Price were going to re- retiring, going to that game? Did that lift everyone even more? I, th- I think that Price was retiring. A bit dirty on Price for retiring. That was just <laughs> the semis in 87. And I think within there, it w- would have been, maybe we might have done the job again in 87. But Mick Cronin got hurt early in that year. So he only played probably, I think, half a dozen games. He lost 80, 90% of his eye. So I knew he was retiring, but I wasn't sure about Pricey. But um, that was a, that was a big day. That was very exciting. A very low scoring game, four two. I mean, I come on at number fifty two. That's my IQ. <laughs> no, there's a story behind that as well. And so that I had a job to do. And that that day with the first grade reserve grade, we're both in the grand final. So Manny took me aside and said, "We'll make you fresh for the first grade side," which you know, I was ready to do the job, whatever, whether it went that extra time or whatever. But when that full time whistle went, it was it was certainly a big buzz, you know. And, the biggest thing, too, is getting back to Parramatta Leagues. You can't explain what it's like coming into the city of Parramatta and just seeing that blue and gold fans, the cars, you know, blowing their horns and got their, their car flags out. And get back to, to Parramatta Leagues, you know, there was a, they used to have that James Hardy truck out there. We get on the, the bus, on the, on the truck, and just a mass of fans. It's just amazing, you know. It's really the whole area gets behind it, you know. To experience that, be awesome to experience that again or yeah, as a spectator, obviously, next time. But, yeah, that's the biggest buzz you can get. And then they, in those days, they'd take us into the lease club and take us upstairs in the auditorium. And, and Ray Warren was the MC, and he introduces to us one one of the time to the crowd, you know, on the floor, like we were in the main auditorium, just bounce up and down. Yeah, but those memories, you know, live in your mind forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the, the number 52 jersey. Tell us that story. How'd that come about? <laughs> I got knocked out a few times in my career. Actually, seventy nine, I got put out for about three months. I got a late head eye tackle at Cumberland Oval, and had all the brain skins, had a bit of bruising of the brain. Was out for quite a while, and then came back. Got knocked out a few more times. Then eighty six, I got I got knocked out. You can't believe my hundred first grade game, and there's I burst my eardrum and this sort of stuff. So I didn't play for a while. But Bob, going back, to Bob, I mentioned him a few times. But um, he and Dennis Fitzgerald, they when well, I made a bit of a comeback. They put heavyweight boxing championship on. A bloke got knocked out after 52 seconds, right? So, <laughs> so they put win 52. Right? <laughs> I don't know if they expected again, but they, I played a couple of weeks in this number 52. And when it comes to the grand final week, sure enough, out comes the 52. Can <laughs> <laughs> you get away with it now? What do you think, Hopper? <laughs> yeah, good, only, a good, only a good mates do that to you, all right? Anyway. That's right, only your good mates. Yeah. Well, on the concussions, obviously now, what do you think about the current game and what they're doing with concussions? Because your era, there were a lot. I mean, the tackling was a, a, a lot higher than what they do now. You get suspended. You'd probably get a 12-month suspension in this day and age to the tacklers you guys were doing back then. So do you think it's a good thing or do you notice some of the, you know, players that have had issues? That's a great thing. I think they've got to eradicate all head-eye tackles. You know, having experienced them yourself, you know, and seen a lot of guys that, that you get knocked out back in our day that it was, <laughs> this was the way something coming on, you know. <laughs> it was someone stomping on you or someone elbowing you or punching you with head eyes, you know. Obviously, the rules there in the book to be adhered to, and um, players were sent off, of course, but maybe not the punishments that they probably should have received. But, but now, with its contact with the neck and the head, I'm 100% behind it. You want, you want the kids to grow up in a safe environment. It's all about the young ones coming through, and, and the players at that level, too. You know, To get to that level, it's, it's not just a click of a finger. There's so much hard work and drive and dedication and that competitive drive you've got to have to, to make it to the top. And, and that, they're there to entertain the fans, and for their own well being, they should be protected. You know, a lot of my mates that I'm aware of had problems that had been highlighted, the likes of Roycey Simmons and Stevie Mortimer and quite a few others, you know. 
have come out and been quite outspoken about the impacts that the rugby league career have had on their health. How that should be eradicated, you know, no head eyes at all. I'm, a, I'm 100% behind it. Yeah, mate, what was it like playing when you got selected for New South Wales and also Australia? That must have been a – is that the highlight of your uh, rugby league career? Yeah, I think so. I, I came to Sydney in 79. I got picked for uh, New South Wales after eight games, which put me in with this, the current Australian team that just returned from England. There was a lot of Craig Young, uh, George Paponis. You had Rod Reddy, Les Boyd, Pricey. Alan Thompson, Tommy Rodonicus, <laughs> a good trip with Tommy, Mick Brown, Steve Rogers, Larry Corrigan, Graham Eady, all these guys. And all of a sudden, I was elevated to that level. I played a couple of games, which was pre-State of Origin, in the Interstate Series. Up at the first game was up at Leng Park. And in hindsight, that was amazing because in that, in that Queensland time, there was the Queensland side, there was um, Mal Meninga, Mal played in that side. And then the next State of Origin, the next New South Wales game that I played in was at uh, the last series and we played at Leichhardt Able, believe it or not, Wally Lewis as a reserve for Queensland. Like as a kid, all you want to do was be out in that Sydney cricket ground, but that was taken away. And we played at, at Leichhardt Oval in 1979. And of course, State of Origin came in 1980. So I had a good fortune of playing alongside those great players and playing the Interstate Series. And then it wasn't until 1984 I was, I was picked for State of Origin. So it was funny because 1980 they picked 17 players for the first State of Origin game. And we trained at um, Billmore Oval. And Ted Glossop was the coach. And then on the Sunday, they cut it back to 15. But I got up the next morning, my name wasn't one of the 15. So I missed, I missed the first ever State of Origin. But there was another bloke wearing number nine, which was my brother, Graham. He was selected to play in that first game, you know. So, so close, but so far. So, but that drive to get back to New South Wales level after having had a few injuries and so on. And that knee in 81 put me out for a while. And then uh, come 1984, I got selected to pick for, play for country. And I can't believe playing man, it broke my hand. So I missed the... Missed the country game, missed selection for State of Origin. Then game three, came up with a selected. Went up to Queensland and Queensland already won the series and they appointed Steve Moran as a coach and we won that third game. And then come in 1985, Terry Fernley was the coach and I got picked for the first State of Origin game. And the big, One of the great memories I've got of that was getting to the cricket ground for the medical and, and for the team to, to get ready to go into camp. And Terry Fernley said, look, you both got a chance to do something no one else has done. 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, Queensland won the series, you know. So, Steve Mortar was a very passionate halfback and very passionate captain. And, uh, we went up to Queensland and knocked, knocked Queensland off in a, in a good result. And then uh, we came back to Sydney and went into camp and came out to the Sydney Cricket Ground in front of the Pasty House. And um, we'll remember that as well, Hopper. We led 12 <laughs> nil. Right? The Queenslanders came back and headed us 14 12, you know. And, I looked around the blokes, Blocker Roach, Paddy Jarvis, um, Wayne Pierce, Crusher Cleo, and what had happened at Dresden should how pumped up we were to win the game. We looked at these blokes and we come we came back and we knocked them off. We won the game. They were they were just as passionate. They wanted to get the job done just as much as we you know, we had a good captain in Steve Moore. Uh, we had you know, Brett Kenny, Nick O'Connor, you know, we had, we had a really Chris uh, Chrissy Mortimer, you know, Eric Groth, um, Jimmy Jack. Chicka Ferguson, they had a great side and we, and we got the job done. That was probably probably the most satisfying moment that you reflect on that. You're part of the first ever New South Wales team to, to win the State of Origin Series. And certainly meant a lot to me. And then touching what you, then uh, I'm, I'm in the bar, I'm in, my family's there. I've got my wife, my wife's pregnant, my mum and dad are in the car. I've got this old rusty old Land Cruiser driving home. And at nine o'clock, they announced the Australian team. I was in the Australian team. And in that moment, like 1985, when you started playing as a little kid back in. Tomorrow, 1964, all of a sudden, it happened. You know, your name's read out in the Australian Rugby League team. It just, you know, there's no words can describe that as a father, you know. So, yeah, that was very fortunate. Very, very satisfying, I suppose. But then, of course, that's, you're not, you've only got the, you've only got the land of the Jews anyway. You know, you've got to give respect and play as well as you can in it. And hopefully I did. Mate, you did. You definitely deserved the jersey and you played extremely well. Mate, the players of today say with State of Origin how much faster it is to playing first grade. Was that the case back then? Did you find going up to the State of Origin level was a lot tougher and faster? Next level, 100%. I agree with everything you say there. You know, you just get out in that field and you look across the halfway line and say, Blake's dressed in those maroon jerseys. <laughs> you don't need much more motivation, you know. I think the first game I played for New South Wales was up there. Tommy Radonix was a little halfback, you know. I'll tell you a funny story about Tommy as well, but, <laughs> but just the enthusiasm that he had, you know, and oh, he just wanted to kill him, you know, even then. 
and when you get out, it's just so it is fast. You know, you just you just you can't believe how quick half time comes. You know, so at every every moment in the game, it's just magnified. Every tackle you make, you just make that extra effort. And every time you cut the ball up, you just put it on the arm and just kind of try to make those extra yards. You know, and the thing that rings in my head is just go on every play, go on every play. That was Jack's big saying. You know, every every game, go on every play and. Um, you just remember those moments because you just don't know what's going to change the game. You just don't know what you do in the game that's important to the result at the end of the 80 minutes. Mate, after that, I mean, you had a lot of injuries as well. So you had a lot of probably time to think and how to come back. And were you ever thinking, well, you know, football's going to end at some stage. I need to plan. An injury could end your career as well. I think I learned that through the head high tackle. I copped in 1979, you know, like I was just knocked out cold and carted off Cumberland Able and ended up in hospital, ended up at Rural, we will finish up it down at St. Vincent's, you know, and all the brains, fans, this sort of stuff, you know. But you don't think about it because I really didn't have anything. I didn't come from a wealthy family or didn't come from anything that I could rest my laurels on, you know. I come from a working class family and rugby league was gave me an opportunity to be successful in life and give you the opportunity to chase your dreams, set your goals of playing for Australia and so on, you know. So that was, that was the biggest thing. That was the the thing about rugby league for me that it gives you that chance to achieve your dreams. As I said, I was a school teacher, so I, I realised when I left Warriors Creek, they had to take up the scholarship and went down there and studied at Wollongong Teachers College, was a part of the university down there. And then um, they give you a job. It's funny, the first job I got was at Maruba Bay High School. Big strapping footballer. We got a few of those bra boys those days because they should have you know, like, made hair those days and come from the western suburbs out here. and had the long hair, so you're, they give it to me, you're a Westie and this sort of stuff. <laughs> that would have been a yeah, tough school, mate, those days. <laughs> tough school, man. 100%. You know. that, was, that was the thing. I was coming from my dad was on the railways for 44 years. I knew what it meant to work and going home from college, you get your job on the railways and work on the wheat silo up there. So you knew what money was important to you. And it just had a working class background. But when I was at school, I used to work in a little electrical shop called Jack Campbell's Electrics. I used to go off the bus after school and go work for him for half an hour, 45 minutes, Monday to Friday, and 9 to 12 on a Sunday. So I saw what retail was about. And back in those days, there was no colour television. The first colour televisions I saw, I watched the old test pattern. I think the first show of colour television was uh, the cricket, the World Series cricket, you know. So we used to sort of rent the arena televisions and, and this sort of stuff. And I used to just stand there and meet the customer when they come in or whatever. But, yeah, it was a good opportunity for me to pursue that ladder in life. I always had the itch to get into retail. You know, which gave me the opportunity down the track. And you did tell us about those stores. You'd ended up creating a, a, a business in, in uh, the Peter Wynn score. Got a business in Paramount. You had it since 1987 fruition. My brother-in-law had a little shop down in um, Birkenhead and I was approached by uh, a guy who opened up Peter Wynn Sports in Tamworth and he'd opened up uh, Steve Weller at Dubbo. He had Paul Mears at Liverpool. He had Ray Price up in Taree and he wanted me, but it didn't quite work out. And then all of a sudden we got together and away we went. We've been doing, doing it ever since. Yeah, great successful business. Mate, also when you retired, you, I've noticed you went into the judiciary with the rugby league. And how, how was that? It must have been uh, tough once, but being a player and then probably – have to try, suspend some of the players that you actually knew? You nailed that, Hopper. You know, like Ron Mass, who's a good mate of mine, he rang me up. He said, well, I've got a job for you. I said, Mass, what's the job? He said, oh, you'd be a good fit for the judiciary. Next thing, John Quayle rings me up. He said, the tax is picking up in two hours' time. <laughs> so here we go. So I was on the judiciary with Kevin Juney, with Vince Bruce, with Alan Sullivan and myself, you know. And you, you nailed it. It was a tough job because a couple, like Benny Elias come in. There was a little fruit store next to the shop here, so... Every time I go down to the bank and the shop, these couple of guys would give me an apple, and a couple of Lebanese guys. And I went in there one, Benny got sent off, and we had suspended Benny for a couple of games. The next morning, I walked down past the, the fruit shop, and the boys flagged it, put their heads down, never talked to me again. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm, I'm in there one day, and Blocker comes in. Blocker got sent off for a head eye tackle, you know, and um, I tried, I was doing my best not to suspend him, you know, like, <laughs> I played country with him, played city with him, played. New South Wales played Australia and gave him four weeks, you know, and he, I don't think he's ever forgiven me, but I just <laughs> you had to stick to the rules. That was the hardest part of it, you know. Yeah. But certainly yeah. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting role. You could see how important it was in the game and it's, it's gone to a next level now where they've built this, I don't really follow how they get their points or whatever, but to nowadays was, for the head I tackle, it was careless, reckless or intentional. So we had to try and work out what it was, you know. <laughs> I remember one day, right, I was in there with who got sent off. I'm just trying to think anyway. Oh, someone spear tackled Freddie Fittler. 
would have been the second row from the Broncos. You know, so after the Judiciary Hero got home, next morning, the papers are ringing me up, the TV, they said, they said, had this boat not get suspended? Anyway, you know, John Law said, oh, get a new Judiciary, and he, he carved us all up, you know. So <laughs> Ronnie Crowell called us into the office. He said, boys, look at this. But we didn't see that video. We weren't showing the actual school. We only showed one side on view, which didn't actually show Alan Cairn was, put his hand in his leg and spear him. So we could only judge what we saw, so we let him off. But if we'd yeah. seen the, all, the, all the videos, mate, we'd give him 12 weeks. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all changed now. They've got the phone. They yeah. show everything. You know, that was a pretty tough job. Mate, when I, it, would have, it would have been tough. It would have been tough. I never think Ron Nassie for that job. I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> mate, you did mention Tommy Radonikas, and he's a character of the game. But, you know, give us a, a story there on, you know, you used to rev you up in the in the change rooms before you ran out. Well, the story I was going to give you was a room with him and Rod Reddy, my first ever game for New South <laughs> Wales up at Link Park. Anyway, um, I got there a bit late. They let me in, got my gear all set out. Off to the game we go, you know, and we won the game. But right on half time, Rocket got sent off, me, the halfback and, uh, for Queensland in the back, and he went back went back to his room. And that was it. He, he wasn't here for the game. So we got back after the game and uh, Tommy was in there. I'm knocking on the door to get him. Yeah, and we let me in. I had to sleep in the corridor. I just said the, <laughs> the boys locked me out. That was my introduction. So and, and Rocket, yeah. Uh, I didn't have a lot of artillery to throw, throw back at him. You know. We went downstairs, got another key. He couldn't let me in. So that was my introduction to Tom Redonagus. But good mates with him. Good mates yeah. with him in latter day. Yeah. Mate, uh, the footy players of today, like, you were playing in the front row at the weight you said you were. Wingers are now heavier than that. I can't, I can't believe it, can you? I think the biggest blokes I played with are Artie Beetson, uh, played against Henry Tartner, played with Bob O'Reilly. They were around 16 stone, 17 stone. I think when I finished, I was about, I was in the second row and in the last two years they put me in the front row. So I got up to about 105 kilos was my maximum weight. But when you see these guys now, 120 kilos, and run like the wind, it's just... It's just a different different world. I think that ten meter rule too accentuate uh, magnifies how fast and big, how strong these guys are. Because the game is so much faster. That ten meter rule has had so much speed to the game. Like now, that was the five meter rule. So you're ten meters away from the opposition. So you're always looking to pop up a ball or whatever. But now it's just next level. Recently, I, th- I can't remember how long ago, but you did suffer a heart attack. I did. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, well, I've done a lot of, I mean, obviously as a lifeguard, I've yep. resuscitated a lot of people, whether from drowning or a heart attack or whatever the reason being. And it's something that people sort of take for granted a bit, you know, and it suddenly just happens. I was always aware my father had a heart attack when he was 51. So I'd, I'd always had tests just to check it out, you know. And I'm, I'm a fit guy. You know, I train every day. I go down the bottom of ice, do my swimming, go to the cricket ground, go to the gym nurse all these days and, it's funny, I got to the shop out here one, one Friday and I had, had a bit of a pain in my chest. I thought, oh, I've got heartburn. So I went across to the chemist and he gave me some mild answers. So I took them, did nothing. But the next morning, the pain was gone. Then three weeks later, I went over to Bond. I did the squad of Neil Rogers there and just a couple, not a couple, a couple of kilos, had a coffee with the boys and walked home, got changed. And as I was catching the lift down for where I live, I felt this bit of a pain come back. And I walked across the road and then all of a sudden I hit me in the chest, through my jaw, across my forehead down. I just collapsed under a tree. I was gone. I couldn't I couldn't fight it. I just, yeah. I just surrendered to it. Yeah. But fortunately, my wife was there with her little granddaughter. She just spotted me in this old ladder desk top and got me up and got, you know, got the ambulance there and took me to the hospital and I had a couple of blocked arteries and they were able to put a couple of stents in. But being fit and strong, always listening to what diets you should have. I, I did all that. You know, it was just to build up a plaque in my heart. So the only tip I can give anyone out there, if it, you know, you don't need any any reasons to go see a doctor, get your heart checked out, but I'll give you a tip, go and do it because it caught, caught me off guard. I, I had no idea that, you know, it could happen to me. I thought I was invincible, you know, benching 100 kilos, swimming in that squad, a couple of days every day. But it got me, it got me good and proper too, actually. Mate, good advice. Now, the other one you mentioned, your brother was playing rugby league as well. What was that like when you lined up to play against each other? Uh, that wouldn't have the best in you. I can tell you, it's it probably the support <laughs> kid, the family, the baby, the family. So he wore the little ass boots, and I think I wore the little Patrick boots or something. He always got the best stuff, you know. We fortunate enough to come to Sydney at the same time. We played country together. He, he'd left Werris Creek and went and played in Newcastle when he finished year 12, and I went to Wollongong, and then all of a sudden we 
we met up with the country, played country, country first to get the cricket ground and both really want to play in Sydney. And, you know, he came to St. George, had 12 years there. He, he won uh, he won that premiership in his first year, which was a huge buzz for him. Knocked us off in the major semi, which I still haven't forgiven him for, you know. <laughs> hey, I think he got rookie of the year the first year, so I was a bit dirty on him as well for that, you know, so he keeps showing me the medal there. But, yeah, I think I think it brings it, that, that competitiveness that you have with one another as kids growing up, you when you do play against him, you really um, you do your best to, you know, to try and beat him in the game. The other thing he taught me too, when I got older, when I retired in 1990, he kept playing. He went out to Western Suburbs Newcastle, at Western Suburbs Magpies under the coach and Warren Ryan. And I was so motivated that he'd do well. And had a good side, you know, but I learned the lesson. Don't become emotionally involved in rugby league because I go watch him play and he get beaten. And yeah, they've been unlucky those couple of years, but. Uh, you know, he had a great career. He was happy. You know, he played country, city, New South Wales. He played in the first state origin team and played for Australia, you know. So probably the biggest buzz I get thinking about that is my mum and dad. You know, they'd come down and they'd either come watch me play or they'd come watch Graham play. And the buzz it gave them, the identity it gave them as well, that their two sons were playing in Sydney and able for us to achieve those, you know, goals we set ourselves. And, yeah, I think I was really happy for mum and dad and for my whole family. Mate, back in those days, there wasn't a lot of money, was there? You sort of had to have another job when you're playing compared to the amount of money the guys are making these days is unbelievable. I think it's relative though, Hoppo. You know, like I was a school teacher, I could live off my teaching. And, and the thing about those days, if I think about it, was that we got paid once a year as a football on the 1st of November to lob up to Dennis Fitzgerald's office to give that money. <laughs> yeah. And so he didn't spend anything. He spent nothing for the 12 months. And then as it, got, as it went on down the tracks... That I might have given people money every six months or whatever, but, but that was the biggest thing. Whatever you in football, whether it be your match payments, your sign-on fee, um, the bonuses you got for representing City or New South Wales or Australia, you got that in one hit. So you're able to do with it. The properties were a lot cheaper in those days too, Hopper. Like now, if you think about the taxation, it's quite high. Whatever they earn now, I suppose they only pick up half that or whatever, whatever schemes are out there. But you know, to try and every cent, I will say this, every cent a player gets he deserves, if not more. You know, because a lot of people may not make a lot of money out of rugby league. And I think that things are relative. I was very happy with the money that I received at the club. Probably you never, you never regrudged it. You don't ever really get to know what other players are getting. The only way I could judge is my brother telling me what he's getting. So I yeah. never, didn't have a clue. Yeah. And I didn't begrudge anyone. You know, I didn't really think about what I was getting. Just what you've got, you're happy with. And today you still love watching the game and, I mean, Parramatta made the grand final last year. You know, did you think that was the year they were going to win? Because they haven't won since your last one in 1986. That's when hair was in fashion, Hoppo. <laughs> <laughs> it was a huge build-up. You know, I suppose I might go in a shop here in Parramatta and saw it, know what it means to the fans. You know, uh, Parramatta moved from – the club itself has moved out to Kellyville now, so they don't see the players like we used to over the years. They train out there. But certainly you'd still see the fans and the, just that they just want Parramatta to win a grand final for them. And most of my customers now haven't seen a grand final, as you mentioned, you know, 86 is a long time ago, but the older people still remember it. So it'd be, I thought they had a chance this year. You know, I thought getting to the grand final, they knocked over the Cowboys and Penrith during the season. I thought they were a chance, but um, I didn't, in one, for one moment, did I underestimate Penrith. They were a good side. You know, the fact they lost uh, Cape Will and Burton the year before and they were still able to back up and win the premiership, you know, speaks volumes of, of their depth. Uh, but for the Eels to get there, I thought it was a, a huge achievement. It gave a lot of people a lot of hope and a lot of anticipation. Unfortunately, when that, when that whistle blows, mate, there's no sympathy in rugby league. <laughs> That's what Jack Stoll saying again, you know. So out they went and they, you know, I, 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 I uh, give them credit. You know, they did a great job to get there and I hope they can go one step better next year. Mate, do you get out of the games still? Do you go and watch them at the play? Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Um, Brett Kenny, Steve Ella, myself, uh, Neville Glover were ambassadors for the club. So as legends, former legends, they call us, and they, they get me along there to home games to meet different sponsors, meet different fans and so on. So I'm really fortunate along those lines. And I, I make every effort to get there as well. You know, I still love the game. If I don't, if I don't get to the game, the away games, they, they take Cranby, Cranham, Bobby O'Reilly, Brett Kenny, Steve I and myself up to Darwin every year when we play up there. So it's a bit of a reunion for us. So, well, we keep away from the players. You don't really need to mix with the players because they, they've got their job to do, but mix with the, you know, with the, the sponsors and the fans. So, yeah, very fortunate. Oh, that's great, mate. Now, at the end of the interview, I do my five fun facts segment. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to throw some questions at you and see how you go. Answer them whatever way you want, mate. The first one is... What are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? 
Best and worst. I think the best person, coming from where I, when I got down to work, I didn't have a car. My uncle was a mechanic and he got me a 1962 Volkswagen V-Dub. What a car. Jill <laughs> wish I still had it in some ways. And probably the worst as well because after I got the motor blew up, so it cost me 400 it cost me two grand to get the thing fixed up. So that might be the worst, best and worst one. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, cats or dogs and why? Mate, I'm a dogs man, 100%. Don't even have to think about it twice. You know, I grew up with cattle dogs, bred cattle dogs. I love the red and blue cattle dogs. They're just, you know, as you say, man's best friend. Yeah. What are you most proud of? Uh, that's a good question. Is I think, I think you know, wearing that green and gold jersey for Australia and having a very close family. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Well, that's probably an easy one to think of. I was thinking about Sandy Moore at that nudie run down Mondale Beach. I was thinking, I'm going from a distance. I didn't join in, all right? You, 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 you weren't in there, were you? <laughs> Some very brave people down there, I tell you. See that? Yes. Were you there? Did you see what's happening? Or? I was up in the tower, uh, watched. So it was like, uh, well, they got about two and a half thousand people, I think they were yeah. saying. So. Yeah, just you don't see that every day at Bondi. Two and a half thousand people nude. No, the binoculars were barred that day. Don't worry. <laughs> There's plenty of uh, odd sights there. Don't worry, <laughs> mate. What uh, song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? You know, I find that an easy one really because I'm a real Mel's Anything fan. Oh, the nips are getting bigger. Started out just a bit. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's one of my favourites. I love it. Yeah, I think they're an iconic band. Very sad now, Greedy passed away. You know, it's awesome songs, but that one sticks yeah. out in my mind. Yeah. Great stuff, mate, Peter. It's been a pleasure, mate, having you in the beach shack, having a chat. And, you know, you've had a great career. I'd love, you know, even though I'm a Mad Roosters fan, I still loved uh, sitting back and watching you play. And especially that Parramatta era, even if you weren't a Parramatta fan, you still love watching that team go around. Good thing about those folks too, Hopper, is that they respected the fans. They respect themselves. They respect their teammates. They respect the opposition. You know, and that was, I think that's what made the side so great. And we're all good mates to this day. And yeah, blessed that I was a part of it. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Hopper. Now let's go to Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack. For Beach Banner is ready. He's back. How are you, mate? I'm back, mate. Back and better than ever. You better be careful. I got some dirt on <laughs> you. Well, mate, I remember the uh, the old days of Bondi Rescue Bali. There's a little story there. <laughs> can you can you believe they allowed twelve of us lifeguards to go to Bali and just run amok for two months? I just yeah <laughs> blew my mind and and took cameras too. Crazy, but. Even though you didn't do much lifeguarding over there, you still came over and made sure that we were doing a good job. And it turns out old Hoppy likes having a good time as well. And we were out one night and there's a couple of lovely young ladies from Sumatra around. And so Bruce thought he would get to know one of the Sumatran ladies and they you know, hit it off and whatever happened, that's none of our business. But the funniest thing was I was riding the ATV to work the next day and old Bruce, he needed a lift back to his hotel and guess who he was with? The Sumatran Tiger. So we're on the back of the uh, the four-wheeler and we were the only ones to allowed to drive four-wheelers in Bali. It's Even the police would kind of look at us all a little bit funny, but because we bought the four-wheelers over to to introduce the Indonesian lifeguards to it and show them how versatile they are and how, how good it is to like when you've got to rescue a kilometre down the beach and you've got a board on the side, you can drive a bike down there and you don't have to run with a board and you know, <laughs> help, help save lives a little bit more. So, so yeah, I'm driving the buggy to work and Hoppo says, can I get a lift? And he says, oh, can my Sumatran Tiger get a lift too? So <laughs> they're both on the back of the buggy and you know, we know, like there's a lot of people from the area that we live and work, Bronte, Bondi, that happen to hang out in, in, in Indonesia and in Bali especially. And, and as we're driving along on the four-wheeler, some of them like to gossip and some of them know everybody. And just by chance, 
we drove past a couple that <laughs> knows everybody. And yeah, words, I remember that. Yeah, word yeah. spread that yeah. Bruce, uh, we won't say who it was, but um, <laughs> but they made sure that everyone knew that Bruce got a lift home with a smart tiger on the back Smarter of the lifeguard tiger. truck. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sure you had a great time, Bruce. But Mate, it's, uh, it's called customer service to give uh, people you know, that need to get to A to B and give them a lift and make sure they get home safe. That's right. I'm sure that was what you were doing. You were making sure she got home safe and you're a, you're a very good man. That's, that's, you've, you've, you've been saving lives since 1951 and you'll keep saving lives till 2050. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if it's great to have you in the beach shack and whatnot. I don't know if, you, I don't know if I'll invite you back after that one. This, but, this you know. might be my, I'll make sure I get my picture on the wall before I leave. <laughs> No, all good, uh, mate. It's uh, always good to have a bit of banner and you know, get bagged. There's nothing uh, better than feels like I'm in the tower. Oh, mate, I'm, I'm not bagging you. I'm actually proud of you. I didn't think you still had it in you at your, your old age of 84. But, hey, you know, if, if Viagra is what you need, Viagra is what you'll take. <laughs> well, that's what I'm about. Now, I'm, I, you know, when I get to 100, I won't get the letter from the Queen. I'll get it from the King. <laughs> You will. King Charles, and you're not far off. Are you a couple of years? Not far, Charles, not might, far. Charles might still be alive. <laughs> Either that or it'll be King William. He's yeah. next in line, isn't he? That's it. King, King William. William. He's next. Yeah. When, when, who's, who's next in line to be the Queen? Oh, it's a long way, I think. I think they're talking hundreds of years before the. Because wow. uh, William's got a son, so he'll be after William. So, yeah. It yeah. could be a long time. Could be. Oh, well. Well. All right, mate. Uh, good to have a chat. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Pop. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Jerry, and he is from Melbourne. And his question is I enjoyed the episode with Grant Kenny. Does he still live in Queensland? Well, Jerry, yes, he does. He uh, still lives up there uh, in Malulabar near Alexandra Headlands. He's been there for the majority of his life and is still living up there, uh, still training, and I just caught up with him recently. So he's doing well, mate, and uh, still enjoys getting out in the ocean. So thanks, Jerry, for your question, and I'll catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.